Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. And so I'm sorry for the slight hiatus. COVID and general life caught up with me. But I'm pleased to be on top of them both and bring you the final episode of the Clinical Reasoning series. The series really has been incredible. To have 10 episodes totaling over 10 hours of long form discussion with guests that have such a depth of expertise and insights into respective domains of clinical reasoning is just wonderful. I very much hope and think that this series will form an invaluable resource for clinicians and students, just like the Course Health and Qualitative Research series, so please enjoy and share. So as promised, in this episode, I'm speaking with consultant physiotherapist Matthew Lowe. Matt is a good friend and regular guest on the podcast, and his ability to reflect and think deeply about the experience of clinical practice and to use evidence and theory to get some sort of purchase on a clinical reality is a joy to engage with and to listen to. Matt and I meander through some of the implications from the series. Our conversation is wide-ranging, and we cover how clinical reasoning as a term fails to capture in technicolor the socially interactive processes of sense-making. We talk about the Kinefin framework as a way of aiding our clinical decision-making in the face of complexity. We talk about the challenge and occasional awkwardness of diagnosis construction within MSK practice. And we talk about what it means to embrace clinical uncertainty and from whose perspective. And finally, we speak about ethics-based practice and also the primacy of thinking narratively. So thanks again to all my guests, listeners, and Patreon supporters. Without you, this podcast won't be possible. So I bring you Matthew Lowe. Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Oliver. Really pleased to be back. So this is great. This is a, a this episode really closes the door on the clinical reasoning series. So it's number 10 of the series. And we've had this episode kind of in our diaries. It's been pushed forward and backwards, but it's great that it's landed on an opportunity to reflect on the series to perhaps dive into some of the implications of some of the episodes and also think about what this means for clinicians, their practice, their relationship with patients, and ultimately their thinking and reasoning. So Matt, I think this is your, not to embarrass you, this is your fourth time on the podcast. (laughs) Uh, yeah it is yeah fourth time on the uh, words matter podcast and i think ages ago i joked uh, on twitter that it'd be a a quadrilogy and this is actually it we're fulfilling that that objective so welcome back for the fourth time and it's always great talking to you and it's great just to have a kind of meander through all the stuff that mutually interests us from clinical reasoning philosophy evidence for practice all that kind of stuff so so welcome Thank you. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure to be back again. Really enjoy it. 
So do you want to introduce yourself, your current clinical work and your current academic work? Yeah, so I'm a consultant physiotherapist. I currently work at University Hospitals Dorset NHS Foundation Trust, which is a newly merged organisation on the South Coast. So that includes Bournemouth, Christchurch and Poole uh, Hospitals. My work is pretty wide ranging in in the fact that I I, uh, have a clinical caseload. I clinically lead MSK therapy services. I have a a research aspect to my role. So I'm uh, very fortunate to be a visiting associate at the Orthopaedic Research Institute at Bournemouth University. And I have aspects of uh, consultancy as well. So uh, currently I am just at the latter part of completing the health edu- uh, a project for Health Education England on trying to facilitate complex clinical reasoning for advanced practice across a multi-professional workforce. So that project is going to come to an end soon and uh, this fantastic clinical reasoning podcast series is going to be linked into it. And, and I think I couldn't be more pleased with with how it how the whole series has gone, to be honest. It's covered such a huge and vast array of, of topic areas, which are reflective of actually the content, fortunately, by no design, actually, in the project itself. So as, as a bit of background to that project, actually, there's nine e-learning modules, which is supported by a, a, a supervisor pack, and it's a practice-based supervision process. And it's, yeah, I'm really proud to be part of that project. It's a project that I've worked with Tim Noblet uh, over at St. George's University. And it's it's been a, a project of, you know, that holds close to, to my heart. And I think yours in some respects in the fact that we both have an interest in, in, in clinical reasoning, although we have an issue with the term clinical reasoning, which we might discuss a bit later on. But yeah, I think this has been a fantastic series. So great work, Ollie. The other piece of work that I'm involved with is uh, I've been fortunate uh, to be accepted at University of Nottingham. Um, so my PhD supervisors are Roger Kerry, uh, Fiona Moffat and Dave Nichols at AUT. And all of them are, are supporting me on this PhD journey, which I haven't really um, come to a to a definitive conclusion as to how I'm going to go about it yet, or even necessarily what the problem is. But what I do know is it's going to be an around sense-making. So it will be an extension of all of the, the, the work on clinical reasoning. But I think it's going to take a very interesting twist. I mean, it'll, it'll completely exemplify the idea that clinical reasoning is more than just thinking hard about a clinical problem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think we both had the same dream. I remember you WhatsApping me or messaging me saying, have you thought about doing a clinical reasoning series? And I I think I said something along the lines of, yeah, yeah I'm on it. I had the same thought too. I'm, I'm pretty sure somehow we shared a dream about, about doing this. So it's fantastic. And as you said, you know, when you think certainly, you know, and I, mentioned these reflections in the AMA that when you mention clinical reasoning, it seems to be loaded with individual clinicians thinking hard about patients' problems and what they should do about it and what clinical information means, how it's interpreted. And as we've seen from the vast array of episodes from narratives to biological mechanisms to uncertainty to ethics, and there's such a, a 
variety of topics, all of which sit comfortably under the idea of thinking about people and patients and trying to help and support them. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the, as you mentioned, clinical reasoning doesn't do the the series justice, and it certainly doesn't do the pursuit of trying to make sense of people's problems with them justice. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very bounded term, isn't it? So clinical means that it, it, it resides purely in the clinical context. But as we all know, healthcare expands into social, historical, cultural contexts, and that's only just a few things. Mm. So it's it's about what seems to happen inside the clinic room, be that in a hospital, private clinic, or wherever. Um, and the, and inside the clinician's head. Absolutely. I mean, it's really loaded. If you look at the kind of knowledge organisation models, and it's about absolutely. structuring knowledge and yeah. how that's used. 100%. So you've got the clinical part, which is the location, and then you've got the reasoning part, which is the individual kind of inside the clinician's head, you know, uh, which is, and it lends itself towards a reflection of what the clinician, um, how the clinician has been educated, what kind of system of thought they've been brought into. Is this something that is very technical and rational and based upon what form of evidence, as is covered on Roger's kind of, uh, Roger's, <laughs> Roger's podcast? Um, or does it take different, in, in what shape or form is that reasoning uh, process taken? And I think historically in physiotherapy, and I think the same is probably true for osteopathy, but I'm not sure is that it's it's generally res- taken the side of a biomedical approach for good reason, because at the end of the day, healthcare safety issues around um, disease, illness, serious pathology, you know, we cannot get away from that. Uh, but we would also be very narrow in the lens if we only focused on that. Quite commonly, we'll hear cited in the literature that serious pathology happens in about 5% of MSK cases or so on and so forth. But I think that does really depend on the context where you practice. Um, so I'm not sure it's quite that low, but, uh, and it certainly isn't, you know, it's certainly not low enough to not consider it at every single clinical encounter but there is there there has to be such space for surplus to think about your clinical reasoning you know the humanistic the relational uh, the historical the narrative which sanya so beautifully brought out in in her podcast episode the aspect of clinical as the location and the reasoning as an individualistic process does seem really narrow uh, and i think as we'll go through you know, this conversation today, I think it really does. I think we probably need to open up space for considering the concept of clinical reasoning in a far more broader way. I completely agree. But then on the other hand, I'm thinking, what isn't clinical reasoning? What doesn't, what area doesn't fall under the umbrella or the category of clinical reasoning? And, and I suppose, I mean, I, there'll be clinical reasoning researchers. I don't know, getting frustrated saying, well, no, it's clinical reasoning is very much this. And it's the cognitive thinking processes and strategies that yeah. practitioners go by to make decisions with patients. So it may be the case that the, the term really alludes to the cognitive processes, which, I mean, is that, is that fair? I mean, I, I don't think those cognitive models can take into account all those other yes. areas that we've covered on the podcast. 
is a it's it's central to it yeah or or should i say essential it's it's necessary but not sufficient i think what what you know let's give some concrete examples so a very obvious one which actually is relatively under investigated in the physiotherapy literature is around gut feeling in the medical literature it's pretty prevalent it's been discussed quite a bit but within physiotherapy literature it hasn't been so neil langridge uh, a good friend of mine is you know published some work on that in in particular in regards to his uh, 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 doctoral thesis but uh, generally speaking like gut feeling in the physiotherapy literature and i can't speak yeah. for the osteopathic literature but it, it, it's it's not really discussed that much and gut feeling comes from experience and uh, a link to emotion for example so, uh, and again, you could say, well, okay, well, that's an aspect of a cognitive, uh, you know, it's a pattern recognition, system one type thinking. So by that, I mean, those fast decisions that we make without even really getting into the kind of interpretive or analytical aspects of our thinking. But equally, what that big brings rise to is this idea of an embodied way of thinking. It, so we we only think through process of being embodied and in relation to something or someone else. So that process of thinking immediately detaches itself outside of the brain, certainly into a body and then beyond the body into someone else. Then when we think about sense making or clinical reasoning, then we have to think about the historical context of your own history and how that shapes the way you think and also the the other person's history of which we always pay so much attention to hence why narrative is so important and when we think of narratives not only is it historically bound but it's culturally bound and it's materially bound <laughs> you know so what i think clinicians do is that they extend their natural sense-making processes to situate it within a particular context and that being the clinic um but i think we all have those skills where we look for those signs and we look the semiotics so the signs of the features the things that you see or not uh, that's quite important you would expect to see something but you don't see it why is that or you see some signs, not necessarily narratively, but you see it physically, the uh, yellow tipped fingers of a smoker or, you know, uh, the the reddened edge of a, 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 an injury or, a, you know, uh, indicating infection. You know, these signs that we like a tracker who tracks animals will see signs of the animal. Clinicians see signs in people and the way in which they express themselves, the anxious glint in the eye, the nervous trembling voice. So these signs are real, they're not linguistic, but that's not to take anything away from semiotics, which is to do with language. And of course, language is important, hence the podcast. <laughs> but so, so there are real material um, factors, which again, probably aren't discussed we often think of patterns when we when we think of clinical reasoning rather than I, I don't often hear podcasts talking about these things where probably if you go back 200 years 150 years or something like that would have been far more common would be talking about the the various inflections of a gate or the 
scuffs on a on on a jacket you know as signs as indicators i'm not going as far as kind of looking up towards the sky and looking mm-hmm. for astrological forms of Fe- evidence feeding the head <laughs> is it phonology is that what it was phonology yes yes <laughs> F- uh, holding on to the head and making some assumptions with regards to the f- shape of the skull or whatever but but I think these uh you know this is where Sherlock Holmes uh you know kind of was was born from wasn't it was was inspired from from the the the, the, the physician um but um but again I think I come back to one of your podcasts where you refer to in the series that we're we're, we're more than detectives because detectives implies that we're looking for a single solution or group of solutions and that actually there is a problem there not only to be discovered but also to be resolved and one of the challenges i think that we have in physiotherapy is is that a lot of of what we probably do isn't curative it's inquiry based and it's accompanied based now lots of people may shut me down for this uh, and say well of course i can cure people and 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 that's fine that comes you know, and you're based on your philosophical perspective. I would suggest, as a physiotherapist, I can only speak for myself. This is that a lot of what we do is may support someone's recovery or towards cure, but I don't think I provide cure to people. Although I, for example, can uh, prescribe medications, those medications don't cure the person becomes better through their own processes, which don't necessarily reside just within themselves. Of course they do, but also the environment and their own ecology. So there's something here about accompaniment, something about us being very fortunate. And I'm very grateful for this to be embedded within somebody's ecological environment or habitat to support somebody else's growth, development, recovery, whichever kind of restorative word we would like to kind of place in there. Because I think that's what we do. And I think clinical reasoning are the processes under which we facilitate that process. And and, and that's going to mean different things to different people in different clinical contexts. Because there's no doubt that, for example, in the emergency department, people genuinely save lives you know there's absolutely no doubt but within the physiotherapy context of where i practice um if i do save a life gosh that's a scary proposition that someone's had a heart attack or whatever and i've had to you know and we're all trained of course to do cpr and things like that but i mean generally speaking our day-to-day kind of let's call it business for want of a better description i can't think of a better one right now but is to support people's uh, growth, f- f- for want of a better description, or restoration, probably restoration. And there's something uncomfortable about diagnosis and and how diagnostic reasoning is described in the literature as this pretty systematic and reasonably certain way of collecting clinical data, information through purposeful examination creating a range of hypotheses or kind of theories around what may be responsible for the person's symptoms, testing those further through clinical methods, kind of reformulating diagnoses, and then you finally settle on the diagnosis. And it's problematic both because to settle on a diagnosis is a static position in itself and doesn't 
account for the kind of fluctuation in 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 symptoms and people's experience of of their symptoms. And moreover, uh, as you said, in MSK, we're, there there are very few diagnoses that actually seem to be useful. I mean, they that actually guide conservative management. And we've got diagnoses which seem to be tied to specific medical interventions, surgery, perhaps some uh, focus injection therapy, things like that. But then we're left with a whole batch of experiences that patients have which fail or fall outside clear diagnostic criteria. Yeah. And there's a part of me that that feels that we... um, we we need some foundation to onto what we to build something upon and i think those diagnostic categories and those taxonomies do serve a purpose for us but the limitation is is that they don't express the fuzzy boundaries that you're trying to basically get at there it's much more to a diagnostic set of symptoms signs indices and referent points not to suggest that they're not important yeah. but um what I'm, what what you're alluding to is that there is way more that exists outside of that, and it's often in those uh, liminal spaces, the spaces in between. That's where a lot of our practice actually resides. It's in the unclear diagnosis. It's the you have the diagnostic features of X, whatever that might be, but there are lots of other diagnostic features that may include Y, Z, or whatever. And I think having that kind of uh, those diagnostic categories at least create, I think, a starting point. But, and this is the challenge for medical education, physio uh, or healthcare education in general, is how do we move beyond the distinct static diagnostic categories towards the the fuzzy and the dynamic reality, in my opinion, of of clinical practice. Uh, And then... it may be useful for me to kind of talk about this really interesting idea that is I've come across through a chap called David Snowden, who is a complexity thinker. He's a philosopher by background. Have you ever ever heard of the Kniffin framework? Yeah, 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 yeah. So the Kniffin framework for those who who are listening who who might be interested is um is 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 a four dimension. Imagine four boxes. But the really important thing is to note that Kniffin is a Welsh name, which stands for habitat. So it's uh, there isn't a really an English direct uh, translation for Kniffin, but essentially this is a sense-making framework. And I think there are aspects of diagnostic reasoning or diagnostic categories or taxonomies that fit reasonably well, depending on the problem issue that we're facing. So... Going back to this Kniffin framework, this Kniffin framework is divided in divided into four different domains, clear, complicated, complex, and chaotic. And in the middle, if, if you imagine you've got a cross, and in each of those domains is where uh, where, where you'll, you'll find those, those four domains, in each of the corners, rather, in the centre of that cross are two domains called aporia, which means... In a clinical context, the clinician uh, is aware that they don't know, but they've got that reflexivity, which is referred to in the podcast. They've got that reflection and reflexivity to recognise that they don't know either what aspects or what the problem is. 
And then there's another domain called confused, where in this case, the, cl the clinician has no idea they don't know. <laughs> okay. So if you imagine that the, those four domains are dynamic in the sense that you can move from different problem, problem spaces as a situation arises, what can be quite useful is, is that we can use that as a, I would call it a heuristic or a rule of thumb to navigate different ways of thinking, depending on what that context is. So if, you, if you're in the clear domain, that's where the problem is very clear. There's good agreement on what the problem is. There's good agreement on what the solutions are. There seems to be a really close relationship between cause and effect, and it's self-evident. A really kind of common, easy way to look at that is if you walk out of your um, house, you step outside, it's self-evident where the markings and the boundaries are of the road. All you have to do is watch for a moment, and you can see that uh, cars drive on the left-hand side of the road. Once you get used to the road and you understand how the road works, you'll see that there are certain markings on the road which denote where you can cross. So that's clear. If we go to the complicated domain, that is where expertise is required. And expertise, which is where these classification systems, I think, can be really helpful. That that basically means that there's generally a good relationship between cause and effect when you observe a problem. So this might be a patient with back pain where they have a recognizable behavior between the positions, postures, movements that they have. There's no other red flags. There's nothing other worrying. You can pick up relationships between these signs, symptoms, indices and referent points. You can create a fairly reasonable diagnosis and then you can formulate a treatment plan in a fairly linear fashion. So in this way that you sense the prop, you sense what the issue is by asking the questions, listening, paying attention, building rapport, and you analyze, and then you, you, you uh, respond. But I think a lot of the problems go into this next domain, which is the complex domain. And the complex domain is this fuzzy, not really clear boundaried issue or problem. There's not much agreement on what the problem is or agreement on the solution. There may be contradictory evidence. Um, the signs and symptoms may be fluctuant. It's entangled with many other issues or problems. Say, for example, that same person now with back pain has now come to a situation where their job is at risk, um, their partner is leaving them, they are at the precipice of having an absolute crisis and all of the problems start mounting up and they start involving and entangling themselves with the problem that you're trying to address. So the problem becomes even more dynamic and ever more challenging. And as a very simple example, so in that way, managing complexity, uh, causation in this case, I think I re respond back to the uh, the great podcast series that you did on the Cause Health Project, you know, causation, although appears linear, isn't. It's dispositional. It tends toward a direction. But there are many different fluctuant dynamic processes which are interrupting, super, you know, uh, uh, imposing, superimposing, <laughs> taking away, interacting in nonlinear ways with that situation. So the best thing you can do is you can trial experiments. You can be honest about that situation. Uh, you can talk about the uncertainty, embrace the uncertainty as opposed to try and control it, which comes back to Natalia Costa's uh, fantastic podcast, you know, because as soon as you try to bound 
a complex problem and you try to make things certain, you step into uh, problematic areas. On that point, what does it mean to embrace uncertainty? Because I, I use the phrase and and also conveying that uncertainty to patients. And I had this, uh, we had a great conversation with Natalia about how to have a conversation around uncertainty with patients. And, and there doesn't seem to be, uh, I mean, it's one thing us embracing uncertainty. It's another thing for a patient who is fearful, potentially vulnerable, is having a miserable experience with their pain or illness. And none of it seems to make sense. There's no clear causative factor or factors and it's all confused. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a hard job, you know, for want of a better word, to work with the patient for them to begin to accept, let alone embrace uncertainty. So I'm thinking what that means for us as clinicians. What does it mean for you? Yeah, I think that's a really, really good question. And also it brings um, to, to a point I was going to give in a bit but it's a really good point, interjection point to actually raise that now, is is that this Kniffin framework may look absolutely fine from a clinical perspective, but from a patient perspective, you know, they're having their own journey, their own problem spaces, which they're trying to navigate, and it's trying to meet them where they are. So um, going back to the embracing uncertainty in terms of the patient, you know, it's, it's a really, it's a really good question. And I think, this is where that podcast, I think, really struck, you know, it, it was probably resonant for a number of different listeners as well, because I think the natural tendency, and I don't think this is necessarily, I don't think it's a wrong move. I don't think it's a, I think it's probably the right move from a clinician who's trying to provide some sense of reassurance for a patient is to say what it isn't. Now, I know that's not particularly helpful for a patient, you know, uh, I, but it's quite, it can be a start. So you do the best yeah. you can with the information that you've got. It also got. fills the silence too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's nothing else I can say about this because it's so uncertain. But what I can yes. say is that you haven't, it's not a fractured bone. Yeah. It's not well, cancer. Yeah, it, it yeah. is to say, you know, it's to acknowledge what the other person may think the problem is. It's to acknowledge that first without asking them in a very untactful way. Because I think there are ways in which clinicians, myself included, have asked that question, what do you think is going on? Okay, In such a non-tactful, a very uh, tactless way that it, 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 the intent was, was all good, but it just fell really, really badly. It landed really badly. But I think if one could elucidate in a very sensitive manner what is felt to be the issue... The, what that creates is a space to say, let's investigate that together. So straight away, that becomes a collaborative process of understanding. And we take very seriously the concerns and we address those concerns and we strike it off or not. So I think it's important that understanding what a problem isn't is helpful, but from whose perspective? I think we have to be really sensitive to that because there's a part which is sensitive sorry, which there's a part which is that we as a clinician need to be reassured what things aren't, and that's all well and good. But actually, we need to start with the person, uh, the patient, um, because 
once we understand, once we can share our expertise and knowledge in that way, then we can start creating further investigation or experiments or treatments, which will then unearth and create in complexity theories is called the, trying to establish or, or come across attractor states. So that means that there are patterns or things that uh, processes, agents or situations or processes really, which navigate towards a particular direction. This is what it's looking like it's being. Now we can do it. It means that it's a process that evolves over time. We can't make a diagnosis immediately. We can't make this absolute static. There we go. It's barn door. It's black and white. It's self-evident. There's the problem. Or it requires expertise. All I need to do is a little bit more digging and there it is. There's the answer. We've discovered it. And, you know, even if we make the diagnostic finding, sometimes the treatment is not straightforward <laughs> so we can we can create a diagnosis but it doesn't necessarily mean the treatment's going to be any easier or better or any different than what the patient's already doing so uh so i think i think when i say embracing uncertainty it, the first step i think is try to understand where the other person's perspectives are in terms of what the problems are we we accompany the, that that person those people on that contextualize the issue with them and then see how we can interrogate that further rather than trying to close down the space tell them what the issues are or not and then try to blindly kind of leap forward hoping hoping for something to materially happen now that's different if it's a chaotic situation so in a chaotic situation which is the final domain it's where we don't know where the boundaries are we don't know what the problem is you have to do something and respond to it an example might be a stranger comes across you in the clinic room, falls through the door, collapses on the floor, and you don't know who that person is. You, you know, and you have to do, you have to act in order to get sense information. So you would obviously look, listen, feel, see if they've got a pulse, see if they're breathing, and then you would take the next step. So anyway, that's, that's kind of closing off that Kniffin framework idea. But I think that that complex domain really is, it's an, it's an, unresolved uh or and and it's unresolvable because it's dynamic i think and i think that but that's what i think we need to get our teeth into i think healthcare and medicine is very good at the complicated domain and managing the chaotic domain in the sense that emergency departments do that every day doctors nurses do that all the time man manage chaos but in that complex space, particularly in long-term conditions, multimorbidities, an ever-growing social, political and technological environment and context driving change at many different levels, at micro, meso and macro levels, we, we live in a complex space. And uh, I think we probably need to have further conversations about that. But, and, and I don't know the answers, but I think it's fascinating. <laughs> but I think we've drifted off in our conversation somewhat. But this is all about sense-making, isn't yeah. it? It's about what do we do next and what is the next best step? And I think that's probably where I'm trying to head with this idea of trying not to contain complexity, trying to, when I say embrace it, is to what we're looking for is the next best step. We're not trying to resolve this. I think where it gets, where, it, I mean, there are plenty of points of where it gets tricky, but is, is clearly there's another person involved with this reasoning process. It's, it's the patient too, or the, or the person that you're reasoning with. And, and it's, you know, it comes back to my comment before that 
we you know how to present that uncertainty to them and and it's all very well us really kind of dwelling in the uncertainty really kind of feeling it and recognizing that that uncertainty is really consistent with just the complexity of the, the individual their kind of social psychological kind of background if you like and everything else but ultimately the person has a much more focused goal which is to just get better or to not be suffering or there just seems to be some tension about a person as an intellectual pursuit kind of thinking about this trying to figure it out what does it mean you know let's get comfortable with it you've got an individual lying there or sitting there thinking i don't i don't really want to have a conversation about uncertainty i really just want to feel better or be in less pain and i just wonder if there's anything you can say about that that difference in in what's important or what's or how we bridge the kind of reasonably kind of simple aims of the of the person which is just to improve their well-being and suffering and not get not necessarily get bogged down with uncertainty but yet there's a introducing this idea to them is also part of them kind of going on to kind of improve kind of health health status and maybe that's where the ethics comes in you know where does the obligation lie um who feels obligated and why and i think claire you know claire's podcast on that was fantastic she brought up many case examples really of very challenging situations and you, and you and you mentioned things like you know tension and paradox and i think unfortunately that is what complexity unfortunately it's part of it so i think if we look to ethical obligation in fact, actually, there's a really nice paper by Ian Edwards, which is back in 2018, which I know you're aware of, but I can't remember if you've put it into the show notes. You may have actually in, in Claire Delaney's book, where you, 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 as a clinician, we try to navigate those on the one side of the bridge. You have the four big pillars of ethics, isn't it? Autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence and justice. And on the other side of this bridge is the relational, personal, individual characteristics of ethics. You know, um, almost that you have on the one side, this third person ethics, and on the other side, you have the first person ethics. And I think we as clinicians have to navigate that. So when we have these conversations, trying to wrestle with the challenges of a person who's suffering, whose diagnosis is uncertain, uh, we can't put a label on it. It means if it, you know, what are the issues surrounding that? What are the obligations of us as clinicians in order to provide that? We have to try and take those big four, those general principles, which is almost like evidence-based practice, isn't it? Those general large population study evidence. And then we have to walk across the bridge and apply them to the particular case for this individual person at this moment. What is best for this person? How can we ensure that they have autonomy? How can we ensure that this particular person, uh, we don't cause harm to that individual person? And I think navigating those ethical spaces, we need to throw into the pot, unfortunately, not to make this any more difficult or challenging. Um, because we, how many times have we seen the well-being clinician, be them a surgeon, a doctor, a physiotherapist and, or whoever, actually try a risky treatment mm. that could cause harm based on because this person 
has a very challenging presentation may have some, let's say a surgeon who operates on a patient who has relatively high risk of poor outcome indicators, shall we say, in their situation. How often do we see that? Again, that's an ethical judgment. I am no, of no doubt that that particular, I'm using surgery as an example, but it could be anything. But I'm sure that that surgeon was very well aware of the complexity of the diagnosis and the complexity and the high risk of, of, of having an adverse outcome. But how did they come to that judgment? And it's because we all want to help people. And I think that's, that's, that's the thing. You've got this person who's mm. in agony, but we've also got to think about all, well, if I do, if I do try to sort this problem out, resolve it, actually, am I causing more harm? Am I going to cause more problems? If I, you know, try to do a risky manipulation in the, in the, in this patient, or, you know, I know I'm trying to make it into a physiotherapy thing, but you know what I mean, or an osteopath thing, but it can be, it can, can be, it'd be in many aspects of healthcare. So I think that tension, I'm afraid I'm not going to, I don't think I'm going to be able to resolve it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think what Claire's episode, what really struck me was, was the ethics, which seemed to sit between the, I suppose, the, the different elements of evidence-based practice where you've got clinician expertise and experience, systematic evidence and patient preferences and values, essentially, and I don't remember reading, I mean, you'll be able to say, but whenever I've read about EBM or EBP, there isn't much talk of ethics. It seems to be no. reasonably undisputable that the evidence seems to kind of drive the decisions. And yes, it's down to the clinician to kind of integrate the evidence and you know, draw upon these different knowledge from these different sources. But ethics doesn't seem to be spoken about at least within the core body of literature around EBM, I mean, there will be papers about ethics of EBM for sure, but it's not advertised as an ethical, an ethical problem solving. It's about evidence, and it, it, we should just it should be it should be called ethics based practice rather than evidence based. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I would agree with you. I, I, I'm, I, I'm not suggesting it's not out there. But it doesn't seem to be very clear or certainly doesn't seem to be very uh, accessible or certainly open or certainly something that people talk about a lot. Um, it's, and the other thing sorry, is... It's, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, think about the values and the preferences and, and just come up with it. Just, just, you know, just, just... It's very much, you know, just make it happen or just... But there hasn't been much... For me as a student and the students which I, which I teach and the graduates I speak to, Ethics is mainly kind of embedded in standards of practice, do no harm, get consent, make sure they're, you know, they're, they're kind of offered a towel, confidentiality, those sorts of ethical ideas rather yes. than well, what's the ethical, I've got this a range of options here with a bunch of different types of knowledge. What's the ethical way to proceed from this point? 100%. I don't think it's there. Well, not in the way that you and I would like it to be, certainly. But there's there's something else which I think you've referred to before in the podcast, which is that if we imagine that that you know that Venn diagram, best of clinical experience, uh, the best of the scientific evidence uh, or research evidence, and patient values and preferences, 
it seems that when you look at that at face value, that it's only the patients that have values that need to be respected or adhered to or looked at or investigated or whatever. But actually, the clinician expertise is value laden. And when we interrogate the research, not only is our interpretation of it value laden, but the researchers who committed to the research in the first place <laughs> had values which made them do the things that they did or do the trial in the way that they did or <laughs> research in the way that they have. Everything is value laden. So um, you could argue for an ethical based reasoning process, couldn't you? You could say, well, actually, all of it's value laden and it's all ethically based. <laughs> so going right back to the beginning, uh, almost, what lies underneath it all probably is ethics. Yeah, at least as a the initial impression about EBM is that it's kind of point scoring, isn't it? That the evidence, you know, there's a piece of evidence to support a particular intervention. It's especially strong, and that scores eight out of ten. Patients' kind of values or preferences around the intervention are six out of ten. I mean, you kind of can see how it's just a maths game, and you end up well. We'll just go with the evidence. We'll go with the patients, but. But there, there isn't. So I suppose, yeah. I, I, just to kind of, I suppose, to draw this bit to a close is, is Claire's episode for me, and it sounds like you too was just a, a, a kind of mind opening, mind altering. I mean, to to really ask those sticky questions. You know, do we should patients always be given the treatments that they prefer or that they want? I mean, what a brilliant question, and how common. Do we encounter that in practice? I mean, all the time, the minute we're yeah. interested in a person's, a patient's preferences, we've got to ask ourselves, well, to what extent am I able or should I meet those preferences? Absolutely. Um, yeah, it, it, it makes me think about, uh, I think one of the things that Claire talked about was about how we should be having these conversations we should be in our communities of practice or uh, at work or, or wherever is to be posing these ethical questions to each other or sharing our stories with each other so that we can try to understand a little bit more about them, hmm. which then makes clinical reasoning even less individualistic, even less about what thinking happens and resides in our heads. And it's a very collective you know, process. I think seeing if we're on to ethics, we could probably just mention Bjorn Hoffman's two episodes, which was a slightly more abstract take on ethics and less easy to operationalize, but nonetheless the, the messages and, and points were particularly strong about what the implications are when we do construct a diagnosis with patients, what those moral obligations that flow from the diagnostic category that's placed on the person. And the second part was around overdiagnosis when we're just going through kind of willy nilly dishing out kind of biomedically orientated diagnoses here, there and everywhere from Achilles tendonitis to, you know, slip discs to, I mean, I'm in the MSK field, but you know, there's a bunch of them and, and what the, the, the kind of cascade of events that might occur from being given an, an illegitimate diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah, I think his yeah all the podcasts are fantastic, but focusing purely on on, on Bjorn's, 
he I think particularly in his second podcast, I thought, I thought both were very good, but in his second podcast, he brought about the the idea of medicalization. It's really uh, you know it's I think it's quite well known as a concept, but it's surprising when you talk about it with colleagues. And I mean across the healthcare spectrum, where some are quite resistant to the idea of over medicalization, they see it as something that, it, you know, it's a medical problem. But I think he really brings out, well, where do we end? Mm. Where where do we say that sadness becomes a medical, uh, becomes depression? Yeah. You know, when do we say where where does anxiety as a diagnosis begin and end? Is it is simple? Basically, he asks those questions. Really, at what at what point do you existential in this in this mm. field? I'm going to describe existential um, issues of the human condition become the, a, a problem that is medical, and I think he really is. I th- it really opens up a can of worms, doesn't it? So at what mm. stage do we say that this is something that we need to ter- uh, have within mm. our boundary, uh, w- uh, have within our territory? Uh, th- this is bound by whom exactly? I think that's a, you know, it was an excellent podcast. Yeah. And it asked, I think, quoting from Dave Nichols, really, yeah. if you come into a podcast or episode or talk or presentation or conversation and you come out less clear than you went in, it's been probably a good conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he, he talks about, Bjorn talks about the expansion of the diagnostic label and the the criteria to, to meet that that label. And so I suppose in our line of work, we might call it abnormalizing where we've got people patients that have entirely normal features of what it's like to be a human in possession of a body which might look a certain way or have a certain shape in terms of its posture have some findings on a scan and and i suppose from the msk point of view whilst a you know overdiagnosis may not work but certainly abnormalizing by presenting to patients these features of their body or their 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 person not to be optimal or normal and causative in terms of pain or illness. We're pretty good at doing that, I think. So overdiagnosis we may not be doing too much of as MSK practitioners. We haven't got a huge number of diagnoses to to kind of to utilize. But certainly we can we're pretty good at pointing out everything that's wrong with patients and using that to to, to kind of structure some kind of course of action in terms of management. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're absolutely entrenched within this idea of normative, aren't we? We're, we're, we're absolutely un, up to our elbows in, in normalisation. And there are so many issues that, that we encounter as a result of that. So first of all, from a pragmatic perspective, actually, how successful have we been? through our normative lens how successful have we managed to to overcome the disability you know challenge that we're up against pain disability and suffering through a normalization approach how many situations have we encouraged stigma marginalization how many people's situations have we diminished yeah, through our normalization lenses i think it's <laughs> gosh that's an entire podcast episode in itself, but I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more. 
So, yeah, I agree. Although I think diagnostically, <laughs> we're pretty good at making stuff up, aren't we? Historically. Currently. <laughs> I think we're still pretty good at it. You know. <laughs> Quite possibly currently. Um, and, uh, you know... Uh, so so we could we could put it under the normalization label but equally i think we could put it under our diagnostic label and you know it really does open up a space for to to reflect really so yeah so where does where you know we're thinking about thinking about diagnostic thinking and reasoning i mean what's the if we if we acknowledge that within kind of medically unexplained symptoms or complex chronic health conditions that to settling on a a diagnosis is kind of like hen's teeth, right? It's just there's it's rare there's going to be a single diagnostic category or or element to a person's complex pain and suffering. So we we haven't really got we can't say you have appendicitis. I mean, and you have surgery and and, and all as well that we're dealing with lots of fuzziness. So in terms of the process of diagnosis within within our within our space seems to be different so we're not trying to arrive at a single causative agent so what does diagnosis look like and what's the merit in teaching diagnostic reasoning to students i mean there does there does still seem to be something helpful about encouraging students to think about clinical findings and what this might mean to both them and to the patient, to the person, as you said, being able to point out some of the relationships between some of these clinical symptoms. It's the diagnostic bit, which the bit when you arrive, well, I can now say that you have X. That seems to be the, the issue, that the, the kind of cognitive acrobats of just moving information across one's brain and and collecting information, interpreting it, using that interpretation to drive ongoing information collection, you know, that seems to be a useful exercise, but it's the the product of that. I mean, to what end should we encourage students or clinicians to do that? So I think there's 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 probably two two different parts that you could tackle that question. And and again, I'm not sure I'll come to a resolution. But there's the pedagogical side. The, the educational side where there's a fact of the matter that p- can, people can get seriously unwell and we are first contact practitioners regardless of you know people come to see us first in that sense and um so there are I- issues and ethics around safety about us having really good solid understanding of stuff that's nasty so diagnosis of ex- so that's the five that's the five percent roughly that's, it. that's that the, the diagnostic the 5%, that's the that- diagnostic diagnosis of exclusion is helpful yeah. but i think we do get too wrapped up sometimes in it but i do think it's very important i think we get wrapped on it for good reason then then we have the process of coming towards different forms of diagnosis does ask us does does demand us to inquire as to what the potential mechanisms that underlie the presentation that we're looking at so you could have somebody who has widespread pain but has a focal area of pain in the shoulder 
for example. And then so you, by having these diagnostic categories that sit in the back in the background, you can systematically assess that person through a process of looking at the neck, for example, and referral patterns. You're bringing these diagnostic artifacts, from want of a better description, to the front of your mind, and then you're trying to fit the pieces together. Um, so having those diagnostic labels, even before, even if you don't arrive to one, it allows a systematic performativity of an assessment of a process where somebody is being legitimized by being carefully assessed, evaluated, understood, and validated. And you systematically go through an assessment, neck, shoulder, thoracic, and you do other sensory tests. And you arrive at features of sensitization phenomena, whatever we'd like to describe that as. And there may be combinations of patterns that you've established and a plurality of contributing factors which we think are relevant and you've shared that with the patient. So though we haven't arrived to a singular diagnostic category which could be that there is rotator cuff related shoulder pain because there are some sensitization tests which given the context of that person's overall pain sensitivity is um it still points in that direction, but it's not as simple as that. So you have a primary, let's just call it, primary diagnostic feature alongside many other or a plurality of other diagnostic features. And so what I think diagnosis does in that context is it creates at least a reason why you might go for a primary or secondary do we go for the contributing factors and do we do we look at those things that we think are more manageable or achievable or again it's a co-constructed agreement you know these are the things i don't think we can get on top of the rotator cuff related shoulder pain in this case until we calm stuff down in this domain first would you mind if we focused on so the treatment for rotator cuff related shoulder pain appears to be exercise based and certainly in the long term gives you better results what we what i think we might need to do is to see if we can settle things down in these particular factors these contributing factors and these are potential tools in which you can use to to help that and then we might be able to tackle this primary diagnosis the primary problem at a later point how does that sound so i think diagnosis seen as a plurality as opposed to a single static unit, holds utility as long as it's seen within this kind of dynamic space. Yeah. And what do you, so in your clinical work, I mean, you have to construct a diagnosis because you need to write it on some kind of form, right? You need to punch it into some case notes. And the structures within which you're working requires a diagnosis it's, it's the it's the key that unlocks a whole chain of events from patient services to kind of ordering scam it's it's so you've got to write something and and what i'm just curious to know what you do write do you just write i'm taking your previous example do you write oh God, it kind of it's got it's got features of rotator cuff related shoulder pain there's also an equal number of features which don't seem to fit that criteria um but i've got to write something because I've, this is a key that unlocks a bunch of services. Ethically, yeah. I'm bound to have some diagnostic idea. I just yeah. cannot say, I don't know what's going on. 
nonetheless, yeah. I'm going to recommend exercise or mm. whatever treatment. So, so I, I just wonder how much the diagnosis is more required by the structures that we work in. Yeah, but it is. So the structures then shape the role that you're in as well. So say, for example, you're an advanced practitioner in that particular role at that particular time, you might be working more in a diagnostic role. And so for a patient pathway to be initiated, there needs to be at least some direction of what the problem is or isn't. Uh, so you might, for example, in a in a complex case, image the neck and shoulder, an MRI scan of the neck and shoulder, for example. You would probably need a plain X-ray AP, lateral. Not that I'm an expert in the shoulder. So, so I think you're right. So the 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 structure that 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 basically supports the role will then head towards the diagnostic processes under which you are taken. If you're working as a private therapist, musculoskeletal therapist, and you come to this vague, you're going to have to put something down because that's going to be credited credited to or or point towards an insurance process, uh, a pathway of insurance claim or or whatever. So I'm just thinking about my own practice. I'll, I'll write something down. And think well, it's not wrong but it's not right either you know does it capture the 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 yeah. totality of the person's pain and the never of course it doesn't never does does it it never does nslbp i mean to what extent does that really capture anything no but i think what you can say is that so i do write the word complex or because if it is if it does appear to be complex i'm going to write it down because I think what that does then straight away immediately draws attention to myself, an insurance company or a, or a radiologist who re- receives my referral, that this is not straightforward and that I've done my best to arrive towards something amenable to that structure, be that uh, medical structure or social structure or whatever, that I've done my best to arrive at something. But depending on the role and form or whatever, the, the social structure so so first of all i put i might put complex or i might not or i might say i might start my first thing i tend to write is so in that particular case it would be uh shoulder uh, i might describe where the, where in the area the problem is so if it's pain usually is pain when in our jobs isn't it usually so i'll describe where the pain is first and then put an impression underneath in other words i don't try to fix towards a diagnosis i'd say uh you know uh, presenting, present, let's imagine I'm writing a clinic letter. Presenting situation, persistent back and right-sided leg pain, impression, so I'm not putting diagnosis, and then I put whatever impression I think it is. And then I'll say, you know, compounded by, and then I'll list what I think the other issues are. And then I put, the, you know, previous medical history medications and so on. So... It, what we what I'm trying to do is not create this idea of a singular problem. I think many other clinicians do the same thing, um, but yeah, it's trying not to say, "Well, yeah, okay, well, this is down to one thing." Because I think it's a bit naive of us, isn't it, really, <laughs> to come to mm-hmm. single diagnostic labels? And I just wonder, with you know, with that and how to, I suppose, package up some of this complexity into a diagnosis, and then also thinking about Sanya's just completely wonderful episode on narratives and structural competency and thinking about how you know, we spoke about kind of hearing patients narratives how they surround their, their how they surround our, our clinical reality and patient social structures 
and that complex journey of kind of illness, recovery. I mean, how do we get that in? <laughs> how do we get that into our diagnostic thinking, our diagnostic writing? How do we communicate that to, to colleagues? I mean, and, and I'm, I'm not expecting you to have any clear answers. I don't think anyone does, but what, what are your thoughts about yeah, that? That's a really and, good question. And what can we do to, to try and encapsulate yeah. or, or contextualize these diagnostic yeah. labels and categories better? Yeah, because diagnostic labels don't exist in a vacuum. You know, they all come from a history or emerge from something. They don't just materialize from nothing. And even, I mean, even, even just, sorry, and I'm not trying to pull you up on your diagnostic discourse, yeah. but even the last five minutes, we were predominantly speaking about rotator cuffs and exercise. And, yeah, yeah. But it's so easy just to slip in, isn't it? To they're kind of easy things to talk about, bits of bodies, mm. and we're pretty good mm. at it and we know them all. But you and I didn't automatically go to yeah. the person's complex social system. No, because the question was about diagnostic labels. But there you go. I mean, so there we go. But the diagnostic label yeah. is loaded with the anatomical yeah. bias. It is. Yeah. Absolutely. So as soon as soon as soon as we start off with something that's diagnostic label, narrative is usually marginalised. Yeah. You know, immediately. You know, so diagnostic label exists as a result or product, as as actually you said. You know, it comes at the result of something. So I think that's a you've 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 spotted that, and the. The, the, the tying in of it's not even tying in everything starts off with narrative everything starts off with narrative the reason why i say tie is that there is a messy coherence that has to exist between story and understanding and interpretation both from the person who we're working with and ourselves so that what I'm saying is, is that uh, when I say tethered to, tied, I don't mean it in a kind of additive or bolt-on sense. I say that sometimes the two don't marry up in this really nice, rational, logical way. And I think when this ties into the complexity idea is, is that we're not trying to resolve stuff. Things can remain messy. And I think we just have, that's what I think we need to come to terms with. Mm. So when we say- That's the embracing. To, that's the embracing. It's it's the acknowledgement um, of uncertainty being messy. It's messy. And that's where I think a strong therapeutic relationship exists within accompaniment. And so going on to another Words Matter podcast episode that you did with Philip Marich, his whole, a lot of his PhD was around or resulted in this idea of accompaniment, therapy is accompaniment. And something that we often don't talk about enough is uh, the option to do nothing. Because I think we often do feel that we've got to do something. And so actually, it, it, that may not be the best thing to do. So yeah, no, going back to, to, to Sanya's uh, yeah, lovely podcast, I think that what she what she really what she really brought was and I, I would love to hear more from her is just how diverse and how much i would say how much value the humanities and all of the arts that she brings into that context for us to really get a nourishing or at least a, a real sense 
of uh, an understanding of of how life is which can't be which can't be reduced can't be reduced it's non-reducible like a medical diagnosis is reducible to its component parts narratives can't they they are what they are and you take them as what they are and as soon and that this is where i think there's a tension that exists between us trying to become analytical like detectives around narratives and trying to reduce narratives to its smaller component parts about what a story is and so what aspects of a story are you going to listen to do you listen to the whole story or do you reduce it to the content of a small part of a story or do you look at how the story unfolds that's completely different so i think there's a heck of a lot of work that we probably need to do in understanding narratives more and the work of um, Brian Broom on his narrative-based work is something that's probably worth looking at as well because he's used narrative, as lots of psychotherapists use narrative, as ways in which people heal. So, um, it, you know, narratives aren't diagnostic. And we're talking about clinical reasoning, which often sits within the diagnostic realm, doesn't it? But actually, clinical reasoning, seen in this way, is treatment. So listening to stories matters, not just as a way to situate or validate somebody's experience or come towards a diagnostic label or whatever uh, and assure safety, which are all very, very important things. But actually, they are forms of treatment in themselves, which I think sometimes we forget about. Yeah, and and uh, great you mentioned Brian, and I spoke with him on the Cortell series as I did with you on episode thirty six, and I'll link it in the show notes. And he spoke about hearing stories and making diagnoses, and how these two different pursuits relate. So yeah, I mean we should really just defer all our thoughts to those to both Sanya's podcast, yes. and Brian's podcast, and Brian's absolutely, yeah. Um, Matt, I'm looking at the time and you've been incredibly generous. What what do you think we need to cover or would you like to cover or? Well, we could, we could say is that, you know, obviously we've, we've dived into the depths, haven't we? We've dived into the depths of a lot of the things that I think clinical reasoning or either forgets, doesn't see, or perhaps is unspoken about. But there's something to be said for having really robust clinical reasoning frameworks, really robust clinical uh, reasoning theory, because we've only come and arrived to this point, which I wouldn't say we're at an end point and we certainly haven't resolved things and there's still plenty of work to do. But the work of Mark Jones in respect of his, uh, you know, the, the huge work that he's put into the uh, the clinical reasoning categories, the, the, the way in which that really does create a foundation upon how we can think about sources of symptoms, pathobiological mechanisms, pain mechanisms, contributing factors, precautions, contraindications, management plan, like it all trips off your tongue. We all know this because of Mark Jones's work. And I, and, and I think, you know, I think we can, we can deep, we can do a deep dive in order to the, the liminal spaces in between all of these diagnostic categories as much as we want. But there is a lot to be said for having those really firm foundations, which allow us a, at least a position to stand and to be able to discuss at some length all of the challenges that come around from diagnosis. So I think, you know, Mark, Mark and, and, and actually, you know, Ian Edwards, Claire Delaney, all of those guys have, have certainly given um, 
paid forward so much into the MSK field in, in, in terms of clinical reasoning. And, and of course, uh, we can't forget Louis Gifford, of course, who did some work with, uh, with both of them, uh, who di- developed that somewhat further. So I can't overstate really how, I, how important I think your podcast series is and, and how well it's gone. So, yeah, well done, Ollie. Brilliant, Matt. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for having me, Oliver. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.